Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. <laughs> Heaven! Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. This is the 40-Year Coach Podcast. I'm Adam Stanko. I am so excited to get to our guest today, Mike Jarvis. But before I get to coach, just want to let you know, in case you're wondering why we're called the 40-Year Coach, it's because we believe winning and personal development are equally important for the complete coach. So as a coach, as a teacher, as a leader, will your impact be felt for four years or for 40 years? And if you enjoy this podcast, please Rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe. You do not want to miss some of the guests we have coming up. If you don't have an iPhone, you can always check us out on Spreaker or on, on iHeartRadio. And of course, you should check out our website, 40yearcoach.com, to learn more about what we are doing. And now on to our guest, Mike Jarvis. He's done it all. Coach Patrick Ewing in high school at Cambridge Ridge in Latin in Massachusetts had a wonderful career at the college level, coaching at St. John's, George Washington, Florida Atlantic, and Boston University. I am thrilled to be speaking to the coach, the author, a man I respect, Coach Mike Jarvis. Coach, welcome to the 40-Year Coach Podcast. Well, it's great to be on, and you know what? I'm a 40-plus-year coach, so guess what? I think it's, I'm a, I guess I'm a pretty good fit for the podcast. I love it. You're perfect. You're perfect. Exactly. Ridge Technical High School, 1962 Massachusetts Class A championship team. What are your memories from playing back in high school? Well, I remember, number one, uh, playing our championship games in the Boston Garden. Uh, I remember uh, the great teammates I had, uh, led by uh, a fellow by the name of Leader, uh, Leader Larry Stead, who became a policeman. And uh, let me. After we won the state championship in the Garden in front of thirteen thousand nine hundred nine, which is a sellout crowd, we took the fire engines and rode those fire engines through the city of Cambridge at midnight. And uh, you wouldn't be amazed at how many people came out of their homes to to cheer on the champs from Cambridge. Your career after after playing in high school, you move on to Northeastern. What were your aspirations at that time in terms of what you you were going to do as a as a player? Well, as a player, I like too many players thought that I was a lot better than I was. In fact, it was only through the grace of God after having quit as a sophomore that my coach Dick Dukeshire uh, gave me a second chance and. Uh, I uh, thank goodness I, I went back. My brother encouraged me to go back and, and beg for that opportunity. I did. And uh, 
And after I graduated, I went back to my high school. So when I went back to the team, I decided, you know what, you're not as good as you think, but you love sports, you love the game, why not become a coach? And that's when I decided I wanted to be a coach. And my dream job and my dream ambition was to go back to the high school, teach physical education, and become the boys' basketball coach. So I went back to my high school. I didn't get the uh, job. In fact, I didn't get it for 10 years until 10 years later. But thank goodness that same guy that I quit on that gave me a second chance, Coach Dukeshire, hired me as an assistant coach. So while I taught in the daytime, I worked as an assistant for him. And then I moved over to Harvard and worked for four years as an assistant for Tom Sat Sanders, uh, the former Celtic great who was on, I believe, nine world championship teams and, uh, you know, learned a lot from him. And, and then uh, 10 years after coming out of college, I finally got my dream job, which was the high school job. <laughs> but uh, it was quite a journey, um, but it was well worth the wait. Okay, so Coach, before we even get into to you taking that, that job back at, at your alma mater, I do want to ask you about uh, – about your time there when you're at Northeastern, just working alongside Jim Calhoun, what was that experience like? And what was he like at that time? Well, it was, it was interesting. You know, Jim has always been, (laughs) been not only a great coach, but an interesting individual. And we had competed against each other in college. I at Northeastern, he at American international college. And we were always enemies on the court. And it's really funny, even when we worked together, we were still coaching against each other because I was coaching the the freshman and sub-varsity teams, and we would scrimmage, uh, you know, the varsity every day. So even when we were working together, we were still competing, and that competition, you know, went on for years and years and years uh, following that. And uh, But, you know, Jim was always a really good teacher and a really good coach and a great motivator. And... Um, but, you know, I was teaching over in Cambridge, and when I had the opportunity to go and just walk basically from my high school through the Harvard Yard, which would take about 10 minutes in total to go to my second job, which was at the university and work with Sat Sanders, who I grew up watching as a kid, um, you know, I, I couldn't say no. So I left my alma mater and went to uh, the other school in Cambridge, and uh, it was pretty good. In fact, uh, and I can thank Harvard also for finally getting the job I really wanted because when Satch left to go to the Celtics, um, I was so I thought I was going to be the head coach at Harvard, but they went in another direction. And uh, thank God they did. I went back to uh, the high school uh, to not only teach but to coach. And, uh, you know, without that, I don't think I would have really got the chance probably to be a head coach uh, at the collegiate level. It's interesting how those things work out. When when you were at Harvard during that time, Coach uh, Red Auerbach is coming to watch watch practice. From what I understand, it at times, uh, what what did you learn from him? Well, I learned that um, Red knew how to recruit great people. Uh, Sat Sanders was a perfect example. You know all those teams that Red built. Um, in fact, uh, you know my brother took me to my first. Uh, Celtics game and I fell in love with Red and the Celtics and Bill Russell I saw him play his first game and saw him win all those championships in Boston and you know uh, when I went to GW uh, I found out Red was a graduate and Red used to come to our practices and our games just like he did at Harvard and uh, we would talk about what it took to 
you know, to put a championship team on the court. Very rarely did we talk X's and O's, but I just marveled at, you know, how he could, you know, inspire, influence, and motivate people and, and you know, serve their best interest, which was to try and, you know, win championships. Incredible, credible man. Yes, for sure, for sure. Oh, and and another incredible man who helped you win some championships was was Patrick Ewing. You you go oh, to yeah. to coach Cambridge Urgent Latin uh, in in 1978, and um, and you end up at some point uh, during your run there. Uh, see, well, I guess the question is, when did you first lay eyes on on Patrick Ewing? Well, it's once again, another example how God works. Um, I was teaching my phys ed class, and one fall morning, uh, around 1972 or 3, uh, Steve Jenkins, good friend and fellow teacher, comes into the gym with this tall, skinny kid who had just moved in from Jamaica and asked me if I would work with him and work with Patrick. And we started working on basketball fundamentals. Uh, little did I know that four years later, I would be his high school coach, and together uh, we would almost go undefeated. We ended up 77-1, and one, uh, won three consecutive state championships, and uh, we're ranked number one in the country. And um, it's, you know, it's amazing. In fact, when I moved to Florida, my pastor, David Nicholas, would always say to me, hey, Mike, I thought you were a good coach. And I said, yeah, I was pretty good, Ralph. And he says, well, how could you lose a game with Patrick Ewing? And one day I says, let me tell you how we how I lost a game with Patrick. I says, Rev, one night Patrick was sick and we lost. And that was it. That was the only time we lost a game because no matter how tight the game was or how contested it was, Patrick would always find a way to pick the team up, put him on the put him on his back and carry us on to victory. And uh I learned very, very early in, in, in age that no matter how good a coach you are Red Auerbach was a great coach, but he needed Bill Russell. I was a pretty good coach, and I certainly needed Patrick Ewing. Yeah, you had your your Bill Russell. I know during that time people speak about the intimidation factor. When you guys would go to opposing gyms, what, what did it feel like when you were walking into gyms and having just a presence like Patrick Ewing and some of the other talented players that were there during that run? Well, you know, it was more it was it was more than that. I mean, this was during the time of forced busing and the height of segregation in Boston and a lot of racial tension and we went to so many gyms and so many courts in the suburbs of Boston, you know, uh playing against uh, a lot of a lot of resentment. I mean, when we went in, they they didn't just want to they wanted to beat us like you couldn't imagine and there was a lot of tension back in those days. It'd be a fist fight. I think every game uh, we've had games where our bus tires were slashed, our windows were broken in, all kinds of things, you know, were yelled at our players. But what it really ended up doing for us is it ended up really taking us to another level. I mean, it was it, it was like we were going into a uh, we were gladiators going into the pit, and uh, you know, seventy seven out of seventy eight times we came out you know, victorious. So it was incredible. In fact, uh, someday they're going to, there's going to be a movie about those mighty, those years in Cambridge. Trust me. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I, I, I can't wait to sit, sign me up. I'll, okay. I'll be the first one to buy a ticket. Uh, <laughs> the, when, when you were going through that, that period and, and your players are dealing with that, uh, what kinds of things would you talk to them about and, and how did you get them to, 
you know, manage their everyday emotions when that's what they're dealing with, not just on the basketball court, but all the stuff off the court as well. Well, you know, one of the things that we did was, you know, when I went back to the high school, I decided I want to want to have like, I mean, a really different kind of a program, especially for an inner city school. And that is I wanted my kids to focus on going to college. And during the times, the years, there, every every one of our kids, except for two kids, went to some form of higher education. Uh, one became a policeman, the other one a fireman. Everybody else went to college or went to trade school, went somewhere beyond high school. And that was our focus. So we, we spent our time really trying to be the best team, the most fundamental team, uh, the most balanced team, and to try and be the best student-athletes that we could. And and just represent, you know, the city of Cambridge with a lot of class and a lot of good basketball. And uh, as we filled up the gyms, uh, people, you know, no matter how much they rooted against us, they respected how hard our kids play, how well they played together, and how, you know, just fundamentally sound they were. Coach, from your experience with the recruitment with Patrick Ewing, and and I want to ask you just about how intense that was and, and, and some of the stories there. But I'm just curious as to looking back now, um, what kind of advice would you have given yourself uh, as, as a younger coach, having a player that was a once in a decade, once, you know, uh, kind of talent? Uh, what kind of advice would you give to to yourself as a younger coach or, or even a, a coach now coming up that that has a player that that is the number one player in the class or the number one player in the last 10 classes, what, what kind of advice would you, would you offer up? Well, you know what? Um, I would, I would basically offer the advice up. Uh, my advice would be to handle, to treat that player um, as if he was your own son um, and that all you wanted for him was to have the best opportunity uh, to be with around really, really good people uh, and to continue to grow, um, you know, physically, emotionally, spiritually, completely, and not to get caught up in the hype uh, and get caught up in all the uh, attention that goes with, you know, with, with having a player like that because everybody in the world wants them, and yet everybody in the world doesn't have the same love and interest that you do. Fortunately for me, <clears throat> I had been, and that's why I think I was an assistant uh, for those nine years prior to Cambridge, because I was being prepped and prepared to handle the recruitment of Patrick. I don't think that I could have. So I guess my my advice would be, you know, uh, to find an older, wiser person than yourself, somebody that uh, you can lean on, somebody that can mentor you, somebody that would have have experiences that you could never gain uh, until you've been through it. And um, so, you know, everybody needs a coach. And, uh, and I, would, I would just advise any young person to make sure they try to find the best coach that they could to help them with the recruitment. All that being said, how wild was it? It was wild. Um, but yet it was controlled because, like I said, I had been at the college level. I had seen, you know, the Kareem... Abdul Jabaz uh, when he was Elson uh, Isindur uh, and those guys come along, and you know we took little pieces of this and pieces of that, and we put together basically uh, we developed a plan that not only would 
uh, give Patrick the opportunity to be recruited by just you know the, the best colleges in the country, but also keep it sane. Uh, his mother asked me to make sure that you know that their family uh, life was not interrupted. That Patrick had as normal a senior year as he could, and so we set up. A, we had a system, and and you know basically it was a blueprint for how uh, a blue chip, how the best player in the country's recruitment should go. Um, and it was followed uh, by the coaches uh, because if it wasn't, they were not going to be allowed to recruit Patrick. They knew it, and um, you know, so we would. He was treated with the utmost respect by the coaches, and the recruitment process. I mean, honestly, probably went smoother for him than it did for a lot of kids with less talent. That's really interesting. Uh, why Georgetown in the end? In the end, it was Georgetown because. It was the place that Patrick felt the most comfortable. Uh, Mrs. Ewing, if she had her way, she would she would have wanted him to play for me, but I wasn't a college coach. Uh, but she did. She wanted him to be with a strong coach. Uh, if it happened to be an African American, that was great. That that wasn't the, you know, it didn't have to be, but it just so happened that John Thompson impressed her. Patrick liked Georgetown and Washington, D.C., because it had the feel of a Cambridge, and especially when I think John took him to a, the local barber uh, uh, shop in the hood. Uh, it made Patrick feel very, very much at home, and John was a great recruiter, and I'm sure that um, you know he pushed all the right buttons as far as what food you know uh, to, to eat and everything else, but Patrick felt comfortable there. He had great choices. I mean, he could have gone to... Boston University and played for Rick Pitino. He could have gone to Boston College and played for Dr. Tom Davis. Could have went to Villanova and played for Roly Massimino. Um, could have gone to UCLA and played for Larry Brown, but he chose chose Georgetown. Uh, those were his six final schools. And I, and I also forgot to mention Dean Smith at North Carolina, mm-hmm. um, who, you know, uh, he would have been on the same team with Michael Jordan and <laughs> James Worthy and uh, Perkins and all those guys. So uh, he had some great choices. Remarkable, too, when you think about the fact that the North Carolina team ended up beating him in the national championship with the, the shot from Michael Jordan. Uh, I, I'm curious, during that time, was – was any consideration thought about making a, a leap directly to the NBA? No, not at all. Back then, very few kids went to the NBA, and those were usually guys that just didn't have any grades. But uh, in Patrick's case, Patrick promised his mother. His mother had come from Jamaica and worked at Mass General Hospital, brought the family members over one by one until everybody was in Cambridge, and he promised her that he was going to go to college and graduate and he fulfilled his commitment and his promise to his mom. Well, Patrick wasn't the only great player, obviously, that you that you coached during your time there. And another standout that people certainly remember is Ramil Robinson, star of the 1989 Michigan National Championship team. Um, what kind of player was Ramil Robinson when you had him at, at Cambridge? Oh, well, pro- I mean, after Pat, he was the best one that we ever had in Cambridge, and uh, he was uh, a unique, he was a power point guard, um, he was, you know, probably the best guy in the country. Um, and he was a man among boys and he was a great team player, just like Patrick and a great worker, just like Patrick. And, 
In fact, Ramil's, uh, you know, what I remember about him, among other things, is after every single game, whether we won or last, lost, he'd pat me on my backside and say, hey, good game, Doc, good game, Coach. He used to call me Doc. I guess he knew that someday I'd be, a, you know, called that at the college level as a teacher. But um, he was he was special, and I, you know, just loved the time that we spent together and uh, the years that we were able to be together, which was all but his last year of high school, because I had gone to BU uh, when he was going to his senior year. You you mentioned um, before we get to that that time at BU, BU mentioned that you know you had the the three straight state championships there, seventy seven and one when you're when you're coaching Patrick Ewing, um, and. In 1981, you also had the chance to coach him in the McDonald's All-American game, uh, which had a loaded roster that year. Chris Mullen, Michael Jordan. I mean, the dream team before it was the dream team was the, the 81 McDonald's game. What are your memories from coaching that game? Well, first of all, Patrick didn't play in that, in that game in Wichita, the McDonald's game, because he had already played in his two All-Star games. So he couldn't play in that game. He took the trip. And what that did for us is it gave us an undersized team. But there was a kid on that team by the name of Michael Jordan who made up for it. And what I remember is that we won the game 96-95. And the last five or six possessions of the game, Michael Jordan scored the last basket. And I knew if we had the ball at the end, we would win. And, of course, a year later, I saw him do the same thing to Patrick in Georgetown in New Orleans when he scored the game-winning basket. And that's that was Michael Jordan. I mean, he he basically tried to win, and and he did. He won every single race, running, you know, suicide that we ran, and he was the guy that you know you wanted the ball to be in his hands at the end of the game. Now Patrick had played the game, probably wouldn't have been as close, um, but it would have been because the West had a great team as well. But um, but you know we were undersized. We did have Michael Jordan, um, Chris Mullins. I didn't know how good he was until the next year because. The night that we played that game, we had to go for speed, and Chris wasn't built for speed, but, boy, he could shoot. So he didn't play as many minutes as I'm sure um, he would have liked and as people expected. We went with a smaller, quicker lineup that included guys like uh, Adrian Branch and Milt Wagner and Buzz Peterson and Manuel Forrest from Louisville. And Bill Wennington was our only really big guy that we had in terms of size and um, you know, but we had a we had a great team, and back in those days when you played the McDonald's game, you actually tried to play defense. And uh, you know, even though the score was ninety six ninety five, there was a lot of defense played, and guys knew they had to had to get in and play defense because we wanted to win the game. During that time, seeing that roster and so many guys who went on to to play prominent roles in college basketball, and of course then on the NBA, how much did you recognize? the talent that that you were witnessing as you as you coach them well you know what it's funny when you are doing something like just like i tell people i never realized how great patrick was totally was because i saw him every single day so i saw a daily progression whereas if somebody saw him one year to the next they probably appreciate how much he improved more than i um i probably appreciated michael jordan's talent more because i didn't see him every day um, but you know, either way, I mean, you're talking about guys who even at the, I mean, even, no matter how good they were, they always tried to get better, always worked on improving some part of their game, uh, whether it was physical or mental, they always got better at their game. 
Uh, I've seen a picture from from that game as well, and 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 your son is in the uh-huh. picture. What kind of role did he play with the uh, 1981 McDonald's team? Well, I tell you, he played a big role because uh, an Adrian, Adrian Branch, who ended up winning the MVP of the game, could tell you that because Mike, uh, I was I was given the opportunity to pick uh, anyone that I wanted for my assistant, and I said, you know what, I'm going to ask, I'm going to pick my son, my 12 year old son, to be my assistant. I mean, I just it, it just made me so proud to be able to to make the trip with him and to have him on the bench with me. And he took it very seriously. In fact, uh, in the first couple of minutes of the game, we're playing, and he hits me, you know, with an elbow like he did all through our years together. Um, and he said, hey, Dad, he's not playing any defense. And I said, Mike, who are you talking about? He says, Adrian Branch is not playing any defense. And I looked out there, and I said, you know what? You're right. So I took Adrian <laughs> out the game. And Adrian probably hadn't been subbed out of a game in his life, and he was really upset. And he came storming by me on the bench, and he went to the end of the bench and, like, you know, slammed himself down the chair. Well, my 12-year-old assistant got up out of his chair, went down, kneeled down in front of Adrian, and he said, Adrian, if you don't play defense, my dad ain't going to put you back in the game. (laughs) And Adrian looked at him like he was, he almost fell out of his chair, so Mike came back, sat down next to me, and a couple of minutes later, he hit me with another elbow, and he said, hey, Dad, let's give Adrian another shot. So, <laughs> yeah. So I said, why not? I wanted him in the game anyhow. So I put him back in the game. Adrian played out of his mind. I mean, he played offense and defense, and Adrian would be the first one to tell you, hey, this coach is crazy. He's expecting us to play defense in an all-star game. I didn't know any better, okay? So... Adrian went back in the game, played his living butt off, and at the end of the game, even to my surprise, he was named the MVP uh, over Michael Jordan. But I, And they, what they really should have done was they should have given co-MVPs that night because both guys deserved to be MVP. But what a, I knew that night, uh, Adam, that Mike, my son Mike, was going to be a coach and he was going to be a great coach. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and he certainly... Did just that. Um, Coach, uh, I'm curious, you know, obviously you mentioned your son is one of them. There's so many people throughout every coach's career that 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 he's helped out uh, by along the way. And and there's just different roles that, that people play and sometimes small ways and sometimes big. And I think it's important to always mention some of those people. And and the way that we're connected is um Tony Colanito, who's a, a very close friend of mine, his father uh, was a teacher at at that school, uh, Cambridge Region Lab, uh-huh. and uh, and and was a, a special assistant, I think, for you for you for for years. Uh, can you can you tell people about who Joseph Colanino was? Oh, Joe, we I used to call him Jumping Joe. He couldn't jump a lick. That's probably why I call him Jumping Joe. But Joe Colanino, Anthony's dad was one of the kindest, most giving persons that I had ever met in my life. In fact, uh, in the late 70s, Joe had an idea, and I, and, and I bought into it, look, hook, line, and sinker. And we, we started a youth basketball program, uh, and it was, the, it's, it, was, it, it was such a great program. It was a co-ed youth basketball program that was born out of an idea that I had at a 
criminal justice uh, class when I was at BU, and and what it was was boys and girls playing in a basketball league starting in the third grade, um, and it was co-ed. Everybody played the same amount of time. We played sideline. We played an adapted game of basketball I took from my phys ed class. Um, We integrated, like I said, it was uh, the boys against the girls. Everybody played the same amount of time, and it was incredible. We taught uh, station. We taught, taught fundamentals before the kids played. And it's still being, it's, the program is still going on today. It was our feeder program. So in Cambridge, you've got to imagine now, we're in, a, we're in a basketball city. Kids are playing organized, structured, disciplined, fundamentally sound basketball using smaller balls uh, that we got made for the program, lower baskets, adaptable baskets that my dad uh, rigged up to hang up over the bas- backboards. And we got kids playing real, I mean, real solid basketball from the third grade all the way up until they play in high school. And Joe and I ran this program. We started it in Woburn. In fact, Anthony uh, was one of the first players ever to play in shoot straight. And Anthony will tell you that kids to this day, you know, they're 50 years old now, talk about that program as being maybe the best program that they were ever in not only for basketball, but we taught sportsmanship. Kids got along. There were black kids, white kids, small kids, tall kids, fat kids, skinny kids. And it was just, it was it was a fantastic program. And, uh, you know, uh, I couldn't have done it without Joe. And, and Anthony, in fact, it's funny, I was watching a, um, a tape. Anthony is a great speaker. Um, and... Um, he was speaking on mindset, on mind, on growth mindset, and all that, and and he was telling this group, and I'm watching this video, and all of a sudden he says, and you know, there was this guy that came into my life at just the right time, and his name was Coach Mike Jarvis. Well, I almost fell out the floor when he told the story about how I had influenced his life by doing some of the things that I did—very, very basic, simple life skills kinds of things that reinforce what his folks were trying to teach him at home. And uh, loved loved Joe, love Anthony, and he's making a difference all across the country, you know, helping uh, helping grow teachers so they can help students grow. Yeah, sadly, Joe passed away at the age of 57. Yes, yes. Um, and uh, that was over a decade ago, but but like you said, I mean, Tony has been a wonderful influence for, for many, many people, and it's it's crazy how basketball brings people together uh in those in those instances uh and i appreciate you sharing that the yes you take the job at at boston university uh as their head coach and you don't see that much where a high school coach goes on to become a head coach obviously you had gained a lot of notoriety uh with your crazy success um in high school but how difficult was it to take the job and how did that process all work itself out well, you know what? It wasn't that difficult, and I say that only because I had been an assistant at the college level for nine years. I didn't have to move my family. I just had to drive my uh, van, my shoot-straight van, across the bridge to to BU. Um, I also had been able to uh, watch BU. Actually, I used to go over to the, take my team over to their practice. John Custer was the coach at BU, uh, who Red Auerbach had recommended. And I think John was just a little young for the job. He had just come from North Carolina. 
didn't have any coaching experience. So when I took the job over, um, I inherited some good players, um, you know, and, and you know he had done a great job with his with the players. In fact, one of the players that I inherited when I took the job over was Kyrie Irving's dad, Dredrick Irving, who was our leading scorer. And then we brought in a couple of freshman point guards, uh, Jeff Timberlake and Tony DeCosta, and we had some other recruits from the Patino years and uh, Hendr- uh, Paul Hendricks and Tom Ivey and Dwayne Vincent. I mean, I had a good team. In fact, uh, we won 20-plus games our first year and you know, almost went to the NCAA that very first year. The only problem we we had during the first three years of BU was that we had to play against Northeastern and Reggie Lewis. So every year we'd, we we would lose to them in the championship game, and uh, they'd go to the NCAA. We would either go to the NIT or go home. And finally, Reggie graduated, and we finally had a chance to go to a couple of NCAA's <laughs> after he graduated. But um, those were those were some fantastic, fantastic years. And and like I said, the prep I had. Uh, uh, coming out of college and working as an assistant for all those years really, really I, I put me in a good position. And in fact, um, we had lost in the state semifinals to Brockton, um, and this was like in '85 or '84, whatever year it was. My last high school, my last year in high school, we we lost uh, on a on a half court buzzer shot. We would have in Ramil's uh, Robinson's junior year. And we would have won the state championship easily uh, if we had won that game, um, but we lost. And it just so happened that we we were, I had a trip already planned for our high school team to go to England and Wales. So we went over to England and Wales. And when I got back home, uh, uh, in fact, at the airport, I think I saw where on the news that John Custer was being let go at BU. And a day or two later, I got a call from uh, Sat Sanders. And he says, "Hey, Mike, how would you like to be the coach, head coach at BU?" And I, I had pretty much given up on my, you know, aspirations of being a head coach in college at that time because there just weren't there were only a handful of black coaches. So, um, I, but Satch, you know, everybody loves Satch, and I think Satch had a relationship with the president. And before you know it, I'm meeting with Rick Taylor, the AD, and before you know it, he's offering me the job. And uh, my kids were coming up, you know, in, you know, just about ready to leave high school, so. I was able not only to get a great job as a head coach, but also guarantee my kids would get a, a free college education. And uh, it was the best deal that money could buy. And um, uh, so it happened that I was destined then to go to BU and then onward from there. But uh, it's funny, once again, how God works. And, uh, you know, Satch uh, Sanders, uh, you know, made made the call. And Satch, actually, the reason why... Um, you know, he he thought of me was because he was really good friends with my brother-in-law. So, you know, it's uh, at what is it, six degrees of separation? I guess uh, there was. I think there was even less degrees of separation between everybody. That's incredible. Uh, for people that haven't seen him, how good was Kyrie Irving's father while he was oh, uh, playing at BU? Well, I tell you what, if he was playing today, he'd probably be a lottery pick. I mean, he was really, really good. His only. His only uh, his Achilles heel was his strength. He was, in fact, when when he first uh, we first got him, and I had a great strength coach, uh, Mike Boyle, who I think coaches most uh, the Bruins uh, in strength and conditioning, and and uh, he went from a kid that barely could bench press a hundred pounds to doing twice that. And every you know he was really good uh, when I got him, and then he was even better when he got stronger. I I think he'd be he would have been in the NBA if he were playing today because he had that kind of game. And 
you know, I probably held them back a little bit because of the way we played. We were such a, you know, team oriented type of game. But in this in this game, a one on one and beat you off the dribble. I mean, he would have been. He probably would average thirty a game instead of twenty. How much of of his dad do you see in in Kyrie Irving's game? A lot more than anybody else because I, like I said, I saw Dredrick play and uh, most people. He did things that you know uh, when he could that that most players just couldn't do. I mean, he's just he could handle the ball like you wouldn't believe, and he could score. And uh, I mean, I see a lot of Kyrie. Kyrie's a little bit more. Dredrick was a was an off guy. I tell you what, I would have seen is the two of them in the same backcourt. <laughs> Special. 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 Yes. Uh, uh, so you're, you're BU from 85 to 90 yeah. and, and then found tremendous success at, at George Washington. And I'm always curious, again, what, what prompts the move having success at Boston University? What, what prompts the move to say, you know what, I, I, I may take this, this next step here? Well, it was time. I never, ever really ventured out of that greater Boston area. And I looked at my wife, and she looked at me one night, and we said to each other, you know, why not? You know, life is short. I never realized I'd live to be, you know, in my 70s. But <laughs> but anyhow, so we said, listen, let's give it a shot. I had been, uh, we used to, comp- we played against Hartford. And at Hartford at the time, they were playing their games in the Harvard's Hartford Civic Center because of a guy, uh, their vice president, Bob Chernak, who had, was a visionary uh, just an incredible guy, and um, I remember a couple years before I went to GW, he invited he invited my wife and I to dinner with him. He was recruiting me, and I didn't even know it. And I, but he did say he said, "Listen, he says I'm not going to be at Hartford forever, and if I go to a bigger school, I'm going to call you because I want you to be my coach." A couple years later, he called me when he went to GW. Now GW hadn't won; <laughs> they won one like one game when he called me. And I says, um, you know, I wish you won a few more games. He says, don't worry about it. You come with us. We're going to win a lot of games. And uh, he recruited me, and and he's one of my dearest friends today. And, in fact, he was probably the best boss I ever had. Not probably. He was the best boss I ever had. And, you know, he just he had a vision, and anything that I needed, you know, he would make sure that I had. And he gave me all the resources and the, the tools to win and um, like BU, there were some good players. They just weren't quite ready before I got there. When I got there, it was like it was their time. And um, we we had great success. And then we we got blessed. We we recruited a uh, kid that uh, by the name of Yinka Dare, who ended up really changing the face of of GW, and uh, you know put help put us on the map. And my first my son's first year out of college, he joined me and. You know, and we went to the Sweet 16, and uh, actually almost beat the Michigan Fab Five that year. Uh, we, I think, we took the game lead a little too early in that game with about four or five minutes to go. And but uh, what a ride! I mean, that was probably the the most the most fun I've had coaching. Probably that, and maybe you know, uh, in high school. But uh, oh, what a great great time that was! I, yeah, I've got I got so much to ask you about that. So Yinkadare. Uh just an outstanding center at, at, at the college level and, and went on to play in the NBA. What kind of similarities did you see between him and, and Patrick Ewing, actually? Not a lot. Vienko uh, was a very different kind of player. I mean, Patrick, was when he, when he was young, was long and lean and incredibly athletic and 
you know, he could run the floor like a deer. Yinka Dare um, was just the, the, one of the strongest human beings. I mean, he would dunk and the whole gym would shake, you know. I mean, I swore every time he dunked, the backboard was going to break. A different kind of player. Yinka, Yinka's game was like three foot and in. Everything was a dunk. Patrick could take you out to the foul line if he had to. And, you know, Patrick was a much more all-around complete player. But they were both... They both dominated in their own way. Um, and Yinker, if he had stayed in college uh, and played another couple of years, he really only played basketball a few years because when he came over, you know, he went to, uh, when he came from Africa, from Nigeria, he went and he played at Milford Academy. In fact, he played there. And one of the main reasons why I got him, he played for my one of my former players, Scott Spinelli, who was the coach at, um, at Milford. Scott's now coaching at Boston College as an assistant and so I had an in, and I took advantage of it, trust me. But when I went to see Yinka play, um, you know, he played maybe two or three minutes, and he'd come out the game, <clears throat> and he'd basically have to lie on the floor. And, you know, so I was, I, I didn't know what was, what, what, he, what was up with the kid. And, you know, there was a possibility maybe he had something going on with his heart. So I remember promising him, I said, Yinka, the first thing we're going to do when you, if you come to GW – we're going to have you thoroughly, fully examined. And if there's any problem at all with your heart, you don't have to worry. You won't have to play. You'll still have a scholarship. It was worth the gamble. We brought him. We took him to the doctors. Come to find out he had asthma. So he got an inhaler, and all of a sudden it was like, I mean, he came to life. Now he could play instead of two minutes at a time. He could play 20 minutes at a time. And he then really started to develop because he was able to really start playing. He never really played a full game in his life. And uh, so once again, uh, we were blessed um, by having good doctors and, uh, you know, getting his situation cured. Unfortunately for him, after he graduated and, you know, things didn't work out in the pros, he, I think he stopped taking his medication, maybe using whatever he was supposed to be taking for his asthma, he ended up having complications, and he, he, you know, he passed away at the age of 33. It's a heartbreaking story. It is. Um, yeah, the, the recalling all of that is. Yeah, I remember when when all that went down. It was yeah. just tragic. Um, it really was. Yeah, well, Coach Wood, um, having these two great post players who who had different different games. Uh, you had such a rare opportunity to coach just special center talents. Um, what uh, what did you learn about about coaching big men? Well, you know what I learned was that if you take uh, the great big men before, I had the opportunity to see the greatest to me the greatest big men who ever played the game. Certainly, the the winningest big men ever played a game, and Bill Russell. When I when I remember one time saying to Patrick, "You're going to be the next Bill Russell." Patrick didn't tell me until years later. He really didn't know who Bill Russell was. <laughs> but but um, because, you know, he didn't watch a lot of TV and all that kind of good stuff. But I, I, I was, I mean, I was born and raised on Celtics basketball, born and raised on Bill Russell and Red Auerbach basketball. And if I could take any big guy and, and try to mold him, I'd mold, try to mold him after a Bill Russell uh, you know, because number one, you're going to win championships. Number two, you're going to have an unselfish guy who's a leader. And that's, you know, but, but every play is different. And in fact, we had a third 
great big man at GW. We got we had a Belarusian kid from Belarus, Alexander Cool, Alexander Cool, um, who came to GW. Uh, in fact, his story is crazy. I mean, we're we've got an exhibition game against the Belarusian team. I have no idea who's on the team. They come to George Washington, and I, you know, our school treats everybody the same. They treated them great. They fed them like kings. And I think that's, you know, and Alexander was being recruited by Kansas and a few other people who weren't really quite sure about him. Well, we were sure we wanted him. In fact, I remember going over to Belarus to make a visit. But I tell you, this kid, I think one of the reasons why he came to GW was because of the food. I mean, and now imagine this. He said to me once, he said, Coach, does my scholarship include food? I mean, are you gonna feed? Are you gonna feed me when I come? And I looked at him and I said, "Could you imagine? He's not asking, am I gonna get an automobile or money or whatever? Am I gonna get fed? So you know, and the good thing is we fed him really good. So we had a we we had such an advantage because I don't the other schools they had their exhibitions games at they may not even fed them. So I'm glad once again Bob Chernak he fed the Belarusian team, and it was a kid that we didn't even know we would recruit and that would come to us that was on that team, and uh, we ended up getting another kid that if he was playing today, he'd be a lottery pick, kid by the name of Yegor Masharikov, about 6'7", 6'8", Belarusian kid. Oh, I mean, talented, as you could believe. So anyhow, we, we I mean, you talk about one blessing after another. Trust me. I mean, these all these things, they don't happen by mistake. That's a, that's a good point. That's a good, really good point. The... Um... The the runs you had, you mentioned your Sweet 16 run in '93 yeah. against that that Fab Five team playing in the Sweet 16. But um, obviously, you learn. It's weird. I, I went back and watched that game, and what's interesting about it is Yankadari didn't even score in that in that no. game, and you're still down two at the half, which is unbelievable. Which is I'm... crazy. What coach? What um, for coaches that haven't done it before? What what is it like to coach in the NCAA tournament? It's the best. It's, I mean, especially the first time. It's great. I mean, then if you can win, I mean, you know, very few coaches get into the NCAA and very few win in the, when they first get in. So, I mean, it's it's special. I mean, and then, you you know, if you're not a high seed, like we were never a high seed until I got to St. John's, you're playing against, you know, the, the, the top-seeded teams. You're playing in sold-out arenas on national television. I mean, it's and the the electricity i mean that's that 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 takes place you know and i never realized how much i missed or how great that felt until i stopped coaching i mean that you talk about a rush you talk about a high it doesn't get much better than that and how do you keep the kids how do you keep the kids nerves calm you don't <laughs> you don't you don't you just you just hope and pray that the game comes quick so we you can start to play because that's about the only thing that'll take care of the nerves is actually playing the game. So you you can't control that. And if you try to, you're wasting your time. You know, what you really should try to do, and the years that we did our best were the years that I probably just let the kids really relax and enjoy it. And um, But, you know, the, the better you get, the more you try to control things sometime, and that's a mistake. So... My advice to a coach going to the NCAA tournament is try to find as many different ways to relax, enjoy it as you can. I mean, take in a movie if you can, practice a little bit less, you know, and just 
just tell the kids, you know what? We're going to we're going to play as hard as we can. If we do, we win no matter what the score is. It's a good way to look at it. The you know, it's interesting. You look back at your career and you you you're a name is synonymous with with so many interesting players and obviously we've run through, you know, the Ewings and Alexander Cool and Yankadare as as all big men. You also had <laughs> one of the most famous little men in, in college basketball, Shante Rogers, too. Oh. Uh, for people that never saw him play, how would you how would you sum up the diminutive Shante Rogers? Oh, I would just say inch for inch, inch for inch, barring nobody, including Patrick and Michael Jordan, and certainly no disrespect. Wow. The best player I ever coached inch for inch was Shante Rogers. And I'm going to tell you a story. And this also will be in the in the in the coach uh, the, the the movie. But Shante Rogers, in his junior year, okay, was our second leading rebounder. Okay, averaged seven rebounds a game. Okay, at five foot three. Now he would tell you he's five five, and I'm gonna tell you a story in a minute. So he's the second leading rebounder. He's averaging about twenty points a game. He's the MVP in the league. In fact, his senior year he was the MVP in the Atlantic Ten, which still is, was, he was even better back then, but it's really good now. But he was the MVP over Lamar Odom, okay, 6'10", you know, all-star Lamar Odom. That's how good he was. I, people compare him to a Muggsy Bowes. I really think he was better than Muggsy, and Muggsy was a great player. And I say that only because Shantae could shoot the ball a little bit better than Muggsy. But he had everything else. I mean, he was... I mean, he was a winner, he was tenacious, he was strong, he was quick, he was fast, he could score, he could do it all. And he could, he could change a game just like Muggsy could on the defensive end. And one day I called him into my office, I think it was going into his junior year, and I said, you know what, or sophomore year, and I says, Chante, I got an idea. Because I used to think I was a pretty good marketer, so I said, listen, I want you to wear number 53. Because every time people see that number, I want them to think of you. He looks at me and says, Coach, I'm 5'5". Five five. What do you mean 5'3"? I says, okay, Shantae, come on over here. Stand up against the wall. And I marked the wall, and then I measured it. It was 5'3". I says, but Shantae, you know what? We're in America. So, you know, it's, it's, you're bargain. So tell you what, let's meet halfway. How about if you agree to be 5'4 and wear number 54? And he said, fine. That's how come he wore number 54 uh because that was that was sort of his brand that was his that was what i wanted people to remember that this guy was 54 and if, see my thing is if you're not over 6 feet you might as well be 5 feet because get, that makes you special he was special and he went to france only because uh uh Steinbrenner co- uh the owner of the nets um <clears throat> Said, you know what? And he he should have made the nets, but they didn't. But he, they didn't select them. And the reason is the owner said, you know what? I don't want to have a midget on my basketball team. And they and he got cut from the nets. He went to uh, France, and I believe he's in the Hall of Fame in France. That's how good he is. Unbelievable, unbelievable talent. Look him up for anyone out there who hasn't seen Shante oh, Rogers. Incredible. Before. Finished in uh, 1999, so now it's almost 20 years. It's pretty pretty hard to believe that that we yeah. haven't seen him on a college basketball stage in in over tw- in almost 20 years. Um, so 
coach from there again your your success i mean um behind you know all of those great players and kwame evans and all these guys at george washington who, who played a major role for you and i'm glad you, you mentioned kwame and you know kwame evans vaughn jones uh, uh sony holland dirk searles i mean alvin pearsall i mean we had oh antoine hot i mean i could go on and on and on we had so many nimbo hammonds we had so many great players yeah, and, and so you do this unbelievable job recruiting, and and you're winning, and and it's recognized. And so, um, next thing you know, it's crazy how life works in full circle. Um, you're tabbed as as St. John's head coach in in 1998 in playing in the Big East, and you know after you had basically transformed the Big East, why you know Patrick Ewing going there. Um, yeah. you know, back in the day. So mm-hmm. it's, it's remarkable how, how things work out. What are your memories from, uh, for taking that job? Oh, crazy. I mean, I had, I mean, I had called Lou Kaneseka to recommend Bill Herrian, my assistant, um, who had gone on to Drexel. And I mm-hmm. recommend, I was calling, I, I, you know, I thought I put in a great recommendation. I talked to Lou for over half an hour about Bill. Lou calls me back the next day and says, Hey, I really, really like what you told me about Bill. But how about you? Would you come to St. John's? And at first I said, no, I don't think so, because I was scheduled to coach, you know, part of the Olympic team. And um, so I, I, I really, you know, I always said New York would be a great place to visit, but not a great place to live. But then, you know, I, I, I changed my mind and I got caught up in the lights like everybody else. And I decided to take that shot. And, and I mean, I'm glad I did, um, you know, because... I wouldn't be where I am today in terms of my walk, you know, my faith. And But anyhow, I'm glad I took the job because the time that we were there, most of it was really great. Um, you know, you're playing in Madison Square Garden. Um, you've got some of the best players in America. You're playing against the best teams. You you know, you're, you know you're going to be in the NCAA tournament most years. Um, it was it was quite an experience. It was. It was quite a. <laughs> it was also very, very interesting. I. I probably should have left there after year one, uh, definitely after year two, um, and you know done a movie on my couple years at St. John's, and I probably could have. You know, I think we would have sold out theaters because the stuff that went on <laughs> there, especially in the locker room behind the scenes, nobody would believe. But uh, it was a crazy, wild time, but we won. And, um, you know, when you're doing well in New York uh, uh, and they love you, you know, it doesn't get much better than that. You never have to worry about paying for dinner. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're living in style. And, uh, but there's a price, you know, sometimes there's a price you got to pay for anything, I guess. Well, you say how, how crazy it was. What, what was going on in, in the locker room? You had Ron Artest on, on some of those teams, <laughs> uh, Eric Barkley, Omar Cook. Yeah, well, once again, you had a lot of, combative I mean you guys I mean we I it's amazing our guys were so together on the court you would think that they were they were blood brothers they were they were from the same you would think they were relatives and yet off the court they fought I mean I there were there were there was many a night when my assistants and I had to break up fights um, you know, guys would get in. I'm not going to mention who fought against who. Um, <laughs> you know, there's one 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 instance probably is well recorded, but you know, maybe when we do the movie, I'll get more into details about some of the locker room brawls that went on. But I mean, crazy stuff. I mean, and you know, just trying to 
sort of like not control but manage uh, some of the personalities because those guys was just so competitive. All, I mean, at all times. I mean, Ron Artest would would get upset with the manager if he didn't think the manager was working hard enough. But that's also what made Ron so great. And when Ron was in college, we, he was hadn't been diagnosed as being bipolar. So, you know, people would often wonder. In fact, I remember Larry Bird calling me and asking me, how how did we manage, you know, Patrick, I mean, um, uh, Ron during his college years. And I, I remember telling him, I said, hey, listen, I said, you're not going to believe this, but what we did was when things got out of control, we called timeout, bring the team out to half court. I would call the priest out. We'd put our hands in and we would pray. And most of the time, Ron would come back, you know, to his to the team, and he would then, you know, calm down, and we could go on. But, boy, when these guys played on the court, they played like they loved each other because um, they loved to win. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, the fact that you saw Ron Artest every day during a period where, you know, a college basketball fans knew who he was, but certainly yeah. the, the world didn't didn't know who he was yet. Um, watching him every day, what, you, you know, you talk about some of the, the mental issues he had, but what about just on the court and in practice? What, what kind of competitor was he? What kind of Incredible. player was he at that time? He would be on that all time team, competitive team. He'd be on, he'd, he'd be on, he'd be there with Patrick or Mill. Um, you know, those, those three guys, um, you know, probably practiced harder than any players that I'd ever seen. I mean, that I'd ever coached. I mean, they just, I mean, every day, every minute of every practice, those guys performed. I mean, I never once with any of those guys had to ever ask, tell any of them they needed to work harder. Um, but because they couldn't work any harder than they worked. I mean, they just worked. They were workaholics. They were all three of them. Other than our test, was there a player during that run at, at uh, St. John's, and, and you think about some of the names. I mean, you know, LeVar Postel, Bootsy Thornton, Marcus Hatton, there, um, Cook, as I, as I mentioned, Eric Barkley. Is there any one of those names that you felt like didn't reach the potential that, that you thought that, that they would? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, I don't think I realized how really good Bootsy Thornton had become, and mainly because I... I didn't respect his defense until the very, very end, and um, you know. But he's, but he became, um, I mean, just one of the best college players there was. And in fact, he he made a career playing overseas. He played overseas for over ten years, um, and you know, one of the best players in in Italy. And uh, so he had a great career. But I, like I said, I I was on him, on him, on him, and. You know, and I think the night that I realized that he had come totally all the way was the night he destroyed Bobby Francis, or not Bobby Francis, but um, uh, from Maryland. Steve uh, Francis. Francis, yes. And, I mean, he just out, I mean, he just killed him, crushed him. And um, so he was he was a special, special player. Um, Eric Barkley was an intense competitor. If he could shoot a shot, shot a little bit better, he would have lasted longer in the NBA. Um Omar Cook just never could shoot the ball well enough to be in the NBA. And that was the one thing we wanted him him to work on. Okay, was his shot and uh, he just he was just he's you know, he was he was a headstrong guy. 
I think his head, him being so headstrong helped him in many ways, but it hurt him in others, and that is the one thing that he, he really needed to change, and he wouldn't allow me to help him change it, which was his shot. But he's been playing professional ball since since St. John, so I guess it's not all bad. And um, But those guys, I mean, you talk about, and Lavar Postel, he improved so much. I mean, when I first went to St. John's the first year, it was like, don't, don't, you know, if we're being pressed, make sure he doesn't touch the ball because he really has, his fundamental skills were not really that good, but he worked so hard at his game. And, I mean, he eventually made the NBA. And, um, you know, uh, you got to give that kid a ton of credit. Absolutely. Coach, I, I know you got to get going in a moment. I just had two quick questions for you. It's okay. One was, one was that uh, you had one of the – I think one of the most incredible weeks in college basketball yeah. Yeah. Uh, in, in February of 2000, you, you beat number nine Syracuse at the time, two days later beat number 18 Connecticut. And then five days after that, you win at number three Duke when, I mean, people do not win non-conference yeah. opponents do not win at, at Cameron and, and you succeeded in, in doing all three. What are your memories from, from that week? Well, I hope Duke never loses another home game to a non-ACC <laughs> team because this is 2018. That was 2000. They haven't lost a home game to a non-ACC team in 18. It'll be going on 19 years. So guess what? I I, I mean that that week. I mean we didn't lose a game that month, and that that week and, and it was just the most incredible. And, 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 you know, two of them were on the road. And like you said, it was a hot Saturday afternoon at Duke. And, you know, Duke's like the old garden. You reminded me of what Red used to do in the garden. He'd, he'd get the temperature up over 100 degrees, and the other teams would wilt. But, you know, and, and, that we, and we beat them. We had a 6'4.5-inch center whose name I didn't mention, and that was Anthony Glover, the man-child. Mm. And he dominated the game inside, and then Bootsy Thornton and Eric Barkley and, you know, uh, uh, Reggie Jesse. And, I mean, uh, oh, the guys just did a great job. And we just hung in there and hung in there and hung in there. And then at the end of the game, we were just tougher than they were. And, um, I mean, we ended up, we should have probably been a number one seed that year, but we ended up getting a number two seed. They ended up sending us out west. Unfortunately, we played two road games, one against Northern Arizona and then Gonzaga, and the NCAA beat us that year, trust me. Um, and they, that was the year that they were chasing after the AU guys, Barkley and Maggetti and all those guys. They finally wore us down. They, they beat us. No team be, beat us on the court. They beat us at the end of that year. But guess what? Um, I couldn't have been prouder of any team than I was of that team. I, I guess the, the other big question, there, and, and, and rightfully so, um, you said it, the NCAA was, was coming after guys at that time, and, and, yeah. um, and it was, it, it was a, a weird period, and just like sort of we're, we're going through another one right now in, in college basketball. Um, at, at the time, a, any regrets and anything that, that you think back on as to maybe I could have done this differently in the position of, of head coach? No, I, the, only, the only regret I have about that time uh, when the NCAA was 
chasing after those guys. I mean, they had made there were a couple of people that had made up their mind that these kids were not going to, uh, they weren't serious about graduating from college, okay? And so they they they, they targeted about six kids from around the country. Eric Barkley uh, had happened to be one of them. And what they did to those kids during the year, I mean, we, we'd be getting ready to play a game, and five minutes before the game, someone would come in the locker room and say, Eric can't play tonight, you know, or something like that. I mean, what they did to that kid and those kids that year was criminal. And I, the only thing that I probably wish I had done was been even more outspoken against it. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I spoke against what was going on, um, and, you know, I probably should have even been more outspoken, to be very honest with you. Um, that's probably my only regret. How much of that do you think was racial, Coach? I think it was. Uh, you know what I mean? It. It. it I, I hate. I hate to even talk about r- racial, because we live in a time in a society. The minute anything goes wrong, the first thing you know, it's racial. Um, I think it was. I, I don't know if it was. If it was. I don't know if it was, as, if it was racial. Uh, if that's the best word to use, I mean, the only thing you can say is I think all of the kids happen to be black, but you know the majority of the kids playing at that level at that time were black anyhow. So, I I I, I think it was it had more to do with power, mm. like most things. It, it was about it was about power, it was about control, and it was about the fact that you know um, the NCAA wanted to let everybody know that they were in control, that they had the power. So I wouldn't say as much I'd say it was more about power struggle than it was about than it was about race. Well uh, lastly coach I just want to say with uh you obviously had success at, at Florida Atlantic. We had Matt McCall on the podcast. You yeah. you've you've got a coaching tree. You I mean the the people that you've influenced in your life uh speak so highly of you and, and he he um, really spoke highly about, you know, your ability to take that program from another position, just like GW, that was that was at the basement and and lift them up to a new level. Um, but in your in your post coaching career now, you've written some books. Um, yes, I just have. Want to I was, tell wondering, me what, I was wondering when you were going to ask me. Yes, That's I what, have. Of course, only, of course. I'm what have you written, you. Coach? Well, you know what, just before, in fact, my last year at St. John's, I, I co-authored my first book, Skills for Life, which is a life skill book. But then after, at, at the end of my FAU time, I wrote a book, Everybody Needs a Head Coach. And I just completed the seven C's of leadership. And I'm using that book as part of my teaching. I'm teaching uh, le- uh, leadership skills um, at South Florida Bible College in Deerfield, Florida. I'm working for an incredible president, Mary Drabeck. I'm helping her also try and build the school and build the brand. So I am teaching and coaching to this day, and I'll do that until the day I die, at the school. You know, my, when in high school, they used to call me Doc, D-O-C. They gave me that nickname years ago in high school. And a lot of the players, Patrick included, still calls me Doc. Well, at the college, Mary Drabick has given me the name Dr. Coach. So I've made it all the way from Doc as a high school coach to Dr. Coach at the collegiate level. I love where I'm at. 
Um, you know, I, I thought I was going to coach until the day I died, and I probably, I'm sure I would have, if I kept coaching, that's where I would have probably passed away on the court because I'm 73, but I feel like I'm 53. And you know what? Um, but I but I believe that God has me right now where he wants me. And what I'm trying to do now is make a difference in the lives of as many people as I can, like I've always tried to do. And I'm also still doing some speaking and, you know, I want to travel and, and share the knowledge and the wisdom Tell people about the things that I did right, the things I did wrong, the things that they can use to become better leaders. And I think that the good Lord has me right where he wants me. So I'm happy, and I'm looking forward to hopefully getting up tomorrow morning and doing it all over again. Well, I I greatly appreciate having you on. 100 wins, over 100 wins at Boston University, 100 wins at George Washington, 100 wins at at St. John's, more than 100 wins, I should say, at each of those schools. Um, uh, just a fantastic career, and you've been a great ambassador for the game. And, and Coach, I, I cannot thank you enough for, for jumping on the podcast. There. Well, I cannot thank you enough for giving me this opportunity to just sit down like I did tonight and just basically go through the, the Mike Jarvis story. I mean, you know, I when I when I have that opportunity, Adam, I realize how blessed I am. And I thank you, and I also thank Anthony, introducing us and i hope to see you and anthony in the not too distant future so again huge thanks to coach mike jarvis remarkable to consider what he accomplished during the course of his career i really appreciate his candidness uh very interesting to hear some of those stories especially back in the the patrick ewan cambridge ridge and latin days it's fascinating uh special thanks to tony colonino for uh setting that up and introducing us also of course want to thank sydney smith my my partner here with the 40-year coach mark eisenberg as always and Ari k for editing the podcast uh again if you enjoy this podcast please rate and review us on itunes ed subscribe uh you do not want to miss our great guests coming up and of course if you don't have an iphone you can always check us out on spreaker Again, that's 40-Year Coach on Spreaker. And, of course, check out our website, 40yearcoach.com, to more, learn more about what we, were, what we are doing in the coaching community. Uh, that'll do it for us this week. We'll catch you next time. Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice, and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details.